Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew. G'day and welcome to Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew, a super series designed to help you get past seven of the most common mistakes Christians make when it comes to the Bible. I'm your host, Mark Hadley, and I'm joined by Dr. Mike Bird, theological giant and the author of the book by the same name. G'day, Mike. Hello, Mark, and hello to everyone who's joining us. Well, this episode, you're going to join us for Chapter 5, We Should Take the Bible Seriously, But Not Always Literally. First up, Mike, thanks for being part of the show, and maybe we should start with why you decided to include this chapter in your list of seven things. Uh, Do you think people regularly get themselves into difficulties because they forget about context? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things you have to take into account when you're trying to interpret the Bible. I mean, one of the questions I ask my students at Ridley College is, you know, when we talk about the Bible has meaning, what do we mean? I mean, what does the word meaning mean? mean you know when we say this means x or y or z or this is meaningful for me we have to talk about what we mean when we talk about meaning now whether we we mean that in the sense of application or basic comprehension so you've got to get around that and then you've got to think about how that works out in the bible and how do things like genre or historical context or the way people have uh, understood something over history How do all those things get fused together and help us to understand the Bible? And what we see then, it's not always so simple of taking it literally. Sometimes we need to take material literarily. We have to understand the literary contours and the texture and the very nature and dynamics of the biblical writings we're looking at at any given time. Okay, so we've got the meaning of meaning up ahead and much more. And we'll be talking about today's topic in an interview to follow. We should take the Bible seriously, but not always literally. But first, we're going to benefit from hearing a bit of Chapter 5. Where does biblical meaning come from? A few different options present themselves to us. Those are the author, the text, and the reader. Is meaning about figuring out any one of these, a combination of them, or some other path toward discerning how texts give and receive meaning by interpreters? Author's intention. For some people, meaning is the same thing as authorial intent. So, once we have figured out what an author was trying to say to his or her audience, then we know what a text means. The task of the reader is to decipher from a text what an author intended to say, and that is the sum of all meaning. Simple. Well, not quite. Two problems present themselves. First, trying to figure out what God or even a human author meant to communicate in a biblical text is not always clear to us. It is not like God gave us an answer key at the end of the Bible, or we can interview the author to check and see if we got the main point. Authors are not always clear as to what they are talking about. For instance, what does Paul mean when he said, For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. I have a few ideas, but I do not have certainty. And I don't think anyone can be certain on Paul's intention here. Second, 
Authors can sometimes be wiser than they know, and their words can often take on a meaning beyond what they intended. Consider this. Did the prophet Isaiah think that the suffering servant referred to Israel, to himself, or to some unspecified person, or to Jesus? If you read the book of Isaiah, the servant appears to be Israel or a prophet who represents Israel. But the prophecy took on a whole new life of its own among Jews and Christians for the succeeding centuries. Christians quite naturally identify Isaiah 53 as talking about Jesus. Therefore, texts can and do mean a great deal more than an author might have intended. Texts can carry extra meaning to what an author originally intended. And a text can also activate a certain meaning for readers far beyond what an author may have imagined when that text touches on a particular set of experiences. There is nothing radical or strange about this point. It merely confirms what we all know. Meaning is a matter of context. Reading some of the biblical commands about slavery will evoke different things for white Anglo-Saxon settlers in 19th century colonial America and something very different for 21st century multicultural urban American churches. Inside the text. For other people, meaning is about the story, rhetoric, and dynamics inside a text. Meaning is entirely independent of the author's intention and is found exclusively in the text with its various possibilities. The task of interpretation, then, is to discover the storied features and persuasive power of a text. Forget the author, just let the text speak for itself. However, it seems strange to read a text without respect for the intention of an author, without an examination of how readers respond to it. I'm sure a first-time reading of Romeo and Juliet would be a very interesting experience for someone who has never heard of Shakespeare. They could plot the emotion, romance, and tragedy of the story, and yet, whether we like it or not, it is hard to imagine making sense of Shakespearean plays without respect to Shakespeare himself, Elizabethan England, and its literature, and the domain of Shakespeare studies. Texts are not toddlers. They cannot wander around as they like, do as they like, rant and rave as they like. No, texts have a parent in their author, and guardians in their readers. Hands of the readers. Then, for other people, meaning has nothing to do with the author or even the text. It is all about the reader. Authors are inaccessible. Texts have no predetermined meaning. So meaning is created by the act of reading. For a cheeky example, scholar Dale Martin likes to illustrate this point by putting a Bible on a speaker's podium, stepping back and inviting people to listen to what the Bible says to them. After a few moments of embarrassing silence, he likes to say, apparently the Bible can't talk, by which he means texts don't say anything. They must be read. Martin believes that although authors have intentions, Nevertheless, the authorial intention is not identical with the meaning of the text. Meaning is not constrained by the author or the text, but by the social context and community of the reader, who is drawn towards certain ways of reading and pushed toward particular interpretations. For advocates of reader-centred approaches to interpreting scripture, you can have multiple readings, but no single right reading of a text because every person and community has their own truth which they can find in the text. 
This results in an explosion of diverse approaches to reading the Bible, where the Bible means something different for every person or every group. You can have feminist, queer, African-American, post-colonial, womanist, liberationist and Marxist interpretation. The possibilities are limitless. You could even have an evangelical Estonian ecological emo reading of Leviticus that is just as valid as anybody else's reading of Leviticus. Or else you could retreat to a type of strict individualism. This is what the Bible means to me, what it says to my heart, and how it speaks to me. Now we should admit that texts can be, in a sense, open, carrying all sorts of possibilities of meaning, eliciting a range of responses from diverse readers, and being read differently within varying communities. There is no question that your personal situation, your location, your culture, your history, and any groups you belong to shape the way you read books like the Bible. I take that as self-evident, and a good thing, as reading the Bible through the eyes of others can be extraordinarily enriching. The problem is that a strict reader-centered approach to finding meaning in a text presupposes that readers are autonomous and absolute, while texts are nothing more than a mirror or echo chamber. If so, then, all you see or hear in a text is what you and your community bring with you. Yet, it seems obvious that reading is a transforming experience precisely because there is something other in the text, something other than ourselves which challenges us and changes us in our act of reading. It becomes possible to read against the presuppositions of one's own community and to use texts to critique one's own context, to contest certain norms and even to challenge one's own way of thinking. Besides, how do we correct bad or wrong readers if not by reference to the author and the text? How do you reject, say, a reading of the Bible that supports slavery, segregation, violence and oppression, if not by reference to the author, text and other readers? If the reader is always right because it is true for them, then you can't critique or challenge any interpretation because all interpretations are treated as equally valid and as self-validating. We are forced into the position that biblical injunctions against the Hebrews marrying Canaanites can be used to legitimise prejudice against interracial couples, if that is the framework or presuppositions that some readers have. Yet the Bible compels us to act in certain ways, often against our culture, against our assumptions, against our own communities, seen particularly in the commands to love God and love our neighbour so that texts can and do place limits on the meanings that readers can take away from a text. Where is meaning? So where does meaning reside? Author, text, or reader? For my mind, interpretation, accessing what we call meaning, is about the fusion of all three horizons together. We take into account the intention of authors and dynamics within texts, and the understanding of readers, and what we call meaning, occurs in the fusion of all three. Ultimately, meaning is the web of connections we make with the world behind the text, the author's horizon, the world inside the text, literary horizon, and the world we inhabit in front of the text, the reader's horizon. The more connections we make and the thicker those connections appear to be, 
the more preferable a particular meaning ascribed to the text becomes, because it explains more of the features that surround our reading experience. Accordingly, a good interpretation, or a preferential form of meaning, is something that makes sense of an author's intention in his or her historical context, whether ancient Israel or the early church. It is something that explains and accounts for all the assertions and descriptions inside a text, and it is something that's imminently relatable to us as readers. In the big picture, meaning includes what the author would say to us now, how the biblical texts challenge and energise us, and how our churches today imagine responding to a given text. Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew is brought to you by the Eternity Podcast Network, where you can find other cool podcasts like Love Online. Love Online is the podcast that aims to give you a Christian approach to the world of online dating. Join host Mel Wade and her team of Christian online daters as they seek to find helpful ways of connecting your faith with the search for the person who will point you ultimately to the greatest person of all. You can find Love Online with a solid selection of other great podcasts over at eternitypodcasts.com or just follow the link in the show notes. And also in the show notes, you'll find a link that'll help you get your own copy of 7 Things I Wish Christians Knew. Now up next, each episode, Mike Bird will interview a well-thought-out Christian who has a lot to contribute on our current topic. For episode 5, Mike speaks to Andy Judd. The Reverend Andrew Judd is a lecturer in foundational Old Testament subjects at Ridley College in Melbourne. He also has an extensive history of working in pastoral contexts, including with students at St Barnabas Broadway and in the residential colleges of Sydney University. He also spent years at City on a Hill Church in Melbourne, where he served as community pastor, meaning Andrew has the perfect mix of academic and pastoral knowledge to help us understand why the Bible should be taken seriously, but not always literally. Hello, welcome to the Seven Things podcast. I'm Mike Bird, author of the book Seven Things About the Bible I Wish All Christians Knew. And today we're going to be riffing off uh, chapter five from the book, which is about biblical interpretation. You know, what are the things that people need to know about the Bible to help them interpretly, interpret it wisely, responsibly, and faithfully? And I'm not going to do this alone. I'm joined by my Ridley colleague and good friend, uh, Andy Judd, who was with me in the first episode of the podcast where we talked about the Old Testament canon. Uh, This time we're talking about biblical interpretation. And Andy definitely is one of the top people to interview on this topic because he has just submitted his PhD thesis on, I'm not joking, Shakespeare's use of the semicolon and its effect upon usage in the King James Bible. This man knows how to interpret a semicolon in the Bible. And out of that manifold wisdom, he's going to be able to explain to us Bible interpretation. So first of all, Andy, let's be honest. 
your PhD thesis was not on Shakespeare's use of the semicolon, semicolon and its effect upon usage in the King James Bible. Uh, I think your, your thesis is actually on, on more, more uh, mainstream um, hermeneutics, which is the science of understanding. Am, am I correct there, Andy? That's right. That's right. So on, um, a, I have a dead German um, who I'm uh, doing my thesis on and looking at how he helps us understand why we can't agree on what the Bible means. Okay, well, great. Well, we'll get to that point in a second. Um, I, want you to, I want you to imagine a Bible study where people are sitting around, you know, with their Bibles open, maybe some Bible study materials uh, on the side as well, and someone says, I think the text means X, okay? So I think the text, or it could be Isaiah, could be Paul, could be Luke, could be Malachi, they're saying, I, I think the text means X. When somebody says the word means, Andy, what do they mean? What, what do people mean when they say, I think the text means something? What is the meaning of meaning? Um, that is that is the question. Um, that is the uh, what hermeneutics is. It's the science of what does means mean. Um, so three general answers that people give. Uh, some people, when they say the text means, um, will be thinking about what they think was in the head of whoever wrote the text down. So getting inside the the head of the author. Um, the other group of people, somewhere in the middle, think that the text means whatever the text in its sort of um, mathematical equations of language um, sort of comes out with at the end. So you put together all the verbs and the adjectives and that scientifically you should be able to work out what the text means. Um, and then the third group of people which are more sort of associated with the, the last, I don't know, 50 years of our Western philosophical tradition, they um, they think the text means whatever the reader thinks it means. So whatever you think the text means is what the text means. And they're the sort of the three general answers that people give. Um, but yeah, what do you think the text means, means Mike? Yeah, well, I, I think it's a lot of those. I mean, I, I use the three analogies of is meaning like something that's locked in a box. So the author's mind is the box and you've got to find a way into the box to find the meaning. Okay, so that's kind of meaning as authorial intention. And then there's, um, you might call that the literary version, I call that game of Scrabble. That's where you're kind of, you know, putting all the letters out and trying to make sense of it. And then I think there's what I call meaning as a mirror. Uh, what the text means is largely what you project into it or what you, when you see into it with your own self at the forefront. So, I mean, that, that's that's the three different ways of thinking about meaning. I think a lot of people tend to go for the, you know, the the box thing where, you know, you've got to get to the author's mind and you've got to get into the box. Um, but I tend to think that meaning can be like a fusion of all three. You've got to take into account uh, the, the author, the intention, and see the author's intent enacted in the intentionality of the text, but recognize that texts can have a dynamic or possibilities or you like this phrase, Andy, text can carry surplus meaning. 
mm. more meaning than the original authors themselves were aware of. And also we read in light of our own experience. Like, you know, it's one thing to read, say, the household codes of the New Testament in Ephesians 5 uh, or Colossians 3 and 4, to, to read that as like us, say, you know, middle-class white male in suburban Australia is different from, say, reading it as a 19th century um, black American slave living in the antebellum south of America. I mean, there's a different experience you have uh, and get different responses will happen when you read these texts. So that, that's, that's, I don't know, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in hermeneutics, uh, but that's, that's my understanding of the debates we have about the meaning of meaning. Anything you want to add to that or maybe even correct or rebuke me on? Andy. No, no rebuke. Um, but yeah, essentially what you're choosing is the, the D, all of the above option, uh, which is, in, in my opinion, sort of what we want to do, right? Like we, we want to be seeing uh, what the text means within the situation that it was created. We don't want to be sort of taking things completely out of context. But at the same time, if it's locked in the past and, and is all about the context um, that Moses was in, then it doesn't say anything to us now. Uh, whereas as Christians, we, we want to hold on to all three things at once. Uh, we want to say that um, you know, Moses wrote this text or um, God wrote this text um, or Jeremiah wrote this text and it meant something in that context. But it still means something now and that meaning um, is still relevant to us today. So you know, Moses, as an example, Moses forbids murder. Uh, he was probably thinking about strangling someone or throwing rocks at somebody. That's still applies to shooting someone even though Moses had never seen a gun um, because we are able to, the text is sort of has a surplus of meaning, if you like, or is able to be um, recontextualized today and still say something profoundly true. Uh, and, and I believe we can still hear God's voice to us through that text. Um, so, yeah, all of the above, always the right option. Okay. Well, let, let me add on to that. You know, there's, there's been a debate within hermeneutics. You know, many years ago, there was an article, I think it was written by a guy called Krista Stendhal, or maybe, maybe someone else. He talked about the difference between what a text meant and what it means, as if there's kind of the original setting, then it's application. Uh, but some people have rejected that for being a little bit too simplistic. Okay. So where do you stand on the what it meant and what it means? Uh, or I think some would say it, it can only be what it means. There is no meant. There's only what it means. So where do you stand on the meant means debate when it comes to the meaning? I mean, this is, this is so confusing, I know. What, you know. Is it what it meant and what it means on the debate about the meaning of biblical text? Yeah, you sometimes see a similar distinction, a similar distinction in um, the meaning versus the significance of a text. Mm. Um, and look, I'm not going to say that's wrong, but it's, it's pretty wrong um, because when you go back and read to try to understand what it meant, you're still understanding it relative to us. You're still imagining uh, what it would be like to be in certain situations and projecting that meaning um, onto the text. And, and you're, you're already coming to the text with your own reason for reading it. I mean, why am I picking up this book? Well, because I believe God is speaking to, to me in it. Well, that's kind of meaning currently. Um, so it's, it's sort of hard to separate significance from meaning or what it means from what it meant. So I prefer to see it as a bit of a, um, a circular process um, where we have certain 
preconceptions and our own perspective about uh, what we think the text is and, and is doing. Um, and then we try to go back and read into the, um, into the text and understand better the situation of the, the speaker. Um, and you know, through that process, going again and again, uh, we, we get a better kind of fix on their world, but also that changes our world. Uh, because we don't really want to study the Bible just to find out what it meant. Um, that, that, that might be interesting for sort of archaeologists and scholars, but I'm interested in the Bible because I think God is speaking to me in it. And so I want to hear what he's saying now. And to be honest, Moses was a person. I'm a person. We're not that different. So I think I can understand something of his world um, in, in relation to my own. So knowing a little bit of back then is okay, but we're still interested and primarily in our own what it means and how it applies to us now. And we can't, we can't block that out. Yeah, that's right. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Now, I know something you're very interested in, in terms of your own, your doctoral studies, even just teaching, you know, you know, Bible in a theological college, is the importance of genre. Or not, did I say that properly? Is it French? Genre? Genre? Whatever, whatever it is. Um, Andy, what is, what is genre and why does it matter in biblical interpretation? Yeah, and I appreciate your outrageous French accent. Um, yeah, so genre, it, it is um, a, uh, a word from, from literary studies, but it is very, very uh, present in the Bible. You, you, you've, you notice when you pick up the Bible that it's not all one thing. There's different kinds of Bible in it. Um, so you read a psalm, and that's a certain type of thing, a kind of thing. Uh, but then you read the histories, you know, the story of David, say, and that's a different kind of thing. And those different kinds of thing, they're, they're all God's word and they're all authoritative and they're all true and they're all relevant to us, but they ask different things of us. Um, so when I'm reading David's story, I'm very aware of his circumstances. I'm very aware of um, how, how that kind of events played out in the past. When I read a, a psalm, it's much more about um, general human experiences with God. Um, most of the time, the psalms don't tell me what the original circumstances were. I just have to um, take their observations about uh, what it's like to be a person, what it's like to know God, uh, and, and I can apply that to myself pretty pretty directly. So different genres, they require different things of us as readers. Just, just like a detective novel requires something of me that's different to my uh, doctor giving me um, a script for medicine, which requires something quite different of me. They're different genres, the different kinds of things. Um, and they're all true, um, but we need to take to these different things with different strategies and, and different um, and, and apply them in different ways. Genre does matter then. Uh, we can't just treat everything it's the same because genre will kind of set up our expectations and, and how we have to take all these things um, individually and then you know, the biblical canon together. So we can't gloss over genre. These questions matter. Can you point to an example where genre like really matters? You know, I mean, is there some sort of, you know, particular debate you can think of where like, okay, this is kind of a big deal. And if you get the genre wrong here, um, it's going to have, you know, all things. I mean, obviously we could, you know, we, we wanted to, we could go to debates about, you know, you know, the book of Genesis, the opening chapter of Genesis 1, and um, it was this kind of a scientific report as if it was written by Stephen Hawking himself about the origins of the galaxy, or is it 
more of like theistic poetry. Uh, there's those sorts of debates. But but can you think of anything where this genre debate really comes home and shows uh, people, you know, our listeners, why it matters uh, really? Yeah, well, maybe a, um, a slightly more subtle um, example um, and hopefully less controversial these days. Um, back in the, uh, the, the 19th century, there was a big debate, you sort of alluded to it earlier, over whether God is okay with slavery or not. So in the, um, you mentioned the antebellum South, um, before the, the Civil War, you had preachers um, and politicians quoting the Bible to either support the idea that slavery is cool and we should all have slaves and that's how God intended it, or to say uh, God actually really doesn't like it when we enslave and mistreat other you know, humans. Um, and interestingly, they, they drew on the same text a lot of the time. So um, my research was into um, Genesis 16, which is the story of Hagar. And I read through all the sermons and all the, um, the, the pamphlets and all the political speeches I could find where they read this story of Hagar. Same text, same question, same historical time and place, same uh, access to knowledge about the ancient world. And yet they come at very different conclusions. Uh, one, of, one group of people, um, the pro-slavery people, if you like, take the text, the story of Abraham and Hagar in Genesis 16 as an example, right? So this is what Abraham did. He had a slave. He mistreated her or Sarah mistreated her. And that's what we should do too, right? So it's like a, a, a morality play or a parable or something. But then the other group of people read the story of Hagar just as a description of history, in which God was working, but just because Abraham does something doesn't mean we should do the same thing. So for them, narrative wasn't normative. Um, it was just a description of fact. Abraham had a slave, um, but we, we don't look there to find out whether God is pro or anti-slavery. So they were reading the same text with slightly different conceptions about the genre. What are we meant to do with this thing? What kind of story is this? Is it uh, something we're meant to copy? and emulate, or is it um, a description of fact uh, from which we're meant to, um, I guess, look a bit more carefully to discern how God feels about events? And that, can I say, genre made a big difference there, especially if you were a slave, right? That really made a big difference to how your fellow Americans um, saw you uh, through that picture. Okay, so this, this kind of stuff does matter. Uh, which, which is which is good to hear. So all this stuff about genre, it's not just all you know weird, you know, high flung theories about literary knowledge and learning that type of thing. It really does matter for reading the Bible and the application of the Bible, and also the ethics of reading the Bible. Okay, that's 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 very important. Uh, what that would suggest to me that your research in the area of literary studies and genre might actually be at some level interesting. Um, Wow. <laughs> wow, yes. A PhD, down there, Mike. A, a PhD thesis that's interesting. Um, Andy, can, can you just can you share with us and th think here of the average layperson, you know, uh, what what is your what is your PhD research been about? Because I know this sort of science of interpretation, you know, we call hermeneutics, uh, is very much your wheelhouse. So can you tell us a little bit about your your um, PhD studies on interpretation? Yeah, so normally we sort of, um, we just interpret. We don't think about it, right? So I read a sign on the side of the road. I know what it means. Um, I see a newspaper headline. I read it. 
I don't think twice about how I'm thinking about the meaning of it. Um, hermeneutics is really just about thinking about how I'm reading something and being a little bit more self-aware. Um, and that's particularly important when there are controversies or difficulties, like in that example I gave of Hagar's story, where we, it is actually helpful to slow down and go, okay, what am I assuming here? What, what is just so obvious to me that I don't even think that it is a thing? But when I meet someone who comes from a different angle, that makes me aware that I have certain, I guess, assumptions um, that I'm, I'm bringing to the text. Um, well, I mean, normally I think you have assumptions and, and, and presuppositions. I'm just reading the text. But hermeneutics is about going, well, hang on, don't be fair. We all bring assumptions to our reading. Uh, so what are they? Um, my thesis was on that subject. Why do smart people who are trying to read the Bible seem to keep coming up with different understandings of what it means? And every thesis needs a dead German to kind of give it some heft. Um, and so I drew on a, a, a dead German called um, Hans Georg Gadamer, who was a, a 20th century philosopher, lived from 1900 to 2002, uh, worked and taught in Germany over that time. So he experienced the full spectrum of political um, and social change. And his sort of answer to the question we were talking about before is a bit of the, um, you know, we're talking about is it the text, is it the uh, reader, or is it the author? He's sort of in that, yeah, D, all of above kind of category. So you'll, you're kind of, you're on safe ground um, with me, Mike, um, in, in choosing that. Uh, he also sort of invented the idea of the fusion of horizons that goes on uh, when we understand an old book. We sort of fuse it with our own worldview, if you like, um, and... We don't sort of just make it say whatever it wants, whatever we want it to say, but we we make it relevant into our own world, and that's part of understanding um, an old book that that we kind of bring it into our own world. Um, so he's a helpful guy. He he makes it about um, not just the author, not just the reader, but both readers um, find new and relevant meanings for the text uh, in in response to new situations and new questions, but they're still constrained by the text that we have in front of us um, by uh, what they know of the situation that it was originally spoken into and, and by the genre. Um, and that's sort of, you know, 100,000 words later, um, that sort of fairly common sense approach is what I, what I came up with. Um, yeah. Well, great. Well, we wish you every success in your uh, doctoral defence and you get passed and you get, you know, get given your doctorate with a with a university medal added on top, Andy. We wish that <laughs> Thank for you. you. We wish that for you. Yeah, I mean, I had my own dead German as well. I did my PhD thesis. I did my PhD thesis on Jesus and the Gentiles, and my dead German was a guy called Joachim Jeremias, and I had to uh, read through his book, um, um, Jesus für Heisen für die Wölke. Oh, no, for the Haydn, for the Haydn, or the Haydn. Yeah, well, Jesus's promise for the nations is kind of what I uh, what I had to what to cover. So yeah, I, I I know about the having a dead German in your PhD thesis. But um, coming to a close, and Andy, uh, let me ask you, uh, what are some basic tips that the average Bible reader, you know, in their uh, maybe in their quiet time or in their Bible study group, what are some basic tips you would give? for biblical interpretation for the average layperson out there? I mean, not everyone can do a PhD thesis on Gadamer 
and uh, looking at the wrinkles in your eyes, they may not want to, um, you know, uh, but what are some basic tips you can give uh, to some people who just want to get, you know, who want to treat the Bible faithfully and responsibly, and they want to get the most out of the Bible. Do, do, do you have a, a few tips off the cuff you can give to us? Yeah, a couple of things spring to mind, uh, Mike. Uh, one of which is just to be really um, uh, kind of, open to understanding the world that the text was originally spoken into. That's one of the most helpful things we can do because it's a bit weird uh, for us. It's a bit like jumping on a plane and going to a foreign country. Um, when we arrive in Bible land, um, it's like the food tastes funny and everyone's speaking a different language and they're driving on the wrong side of the road and it's, it's quite disorientating. Or at least it should be, unless we're just not observing anything. Uh, there's different things. There's different marriage customs, different um, social situations. It can be quite hard to understand what's going on. And um, I think my advice there is to be like a good traveller. Ask questions, slow down, don't jump to conclusions. It may be that that entire civilization um, and all history up until about 2005 were evil, um, but maybe they were living in a different world. And by being good travelers, we're sort of open to that new experience. I guess one of the things Gardner talks about is uh, you can't guarantee you're gonna be right about a book in advance, but you can be open to new experiences. Um, and that's sort of what, um, what he recommends and I recommend. And uh, the other thing that can help with that is actually reading with other people um, and people who have a different worldview to yourself. One thing that happens when you read with people who are quite different to yourself is it, it foregrounds, it brings to your attention some of the assumptions that you didn't know you were making. Um, so an example of this I, I could give in, in one of my classes on um, Genesis, we we're looking at the way that um, a couple of the Old Testament figures, um, they, they have multiple wives and when there's a conflict between the wives, they don't intervene. And I thought, what absolute rubbish human beings those you know, patriarchs were, um, not kind of you know, defending and getting involved. Um, what kind of you know, rubbish excuses for men they must be. Well, one of the uh, women in my class who actually came from a culture where in her family, her cousins had been um, in polygamous uh, family units, she said, oh, well, no, actually, um, that made total sense to me because uh, as the husband, you don't get involved in the women's side of the, the family in those disputes. Like if you, you kind of respect that, that separation, they, they, um, they would never get involved. Now, she wasn't endorsing that sort of worldview. She certainly wasn't endorsing polygamy. But her experience was able to foreground something I was assuming that I didn't even know I was assuming. I had a picture of kind of what the right thing to do would be, and I was prematurely judging the outcome of the text um, based on that. So reading with people who are different and being open you know, to the shock horror I might be wrong. I mean, we don't often have that assumption, right? We don't often assume that we might be wrong. But that's actually the most powerful tool in good reading is, is that openness to the possibility that something I believe might not be the truth. And conversely, as crazy as this sounds, Mike, you might have something to share with me that I don't know yet. Um, and that sort of posture, that humility, uh, I think it's key to, to good reading. That sounds like some very, very good advice, um, Andy, uh, that I guess anyone can take away, uh, a willingness to learn from others, uh, an openness that one could be wrong. So, yeah, I, I guess you could say we all need a little bit of humility, uh, a willingness to learn and a willingness to admit we, we might be wrong. And anyone who's changed their mind on anything uh, as it relates to the Bible uh, 
should be open there because if you've changed your mind on something, it means you admitted that you were previously wrong on something. So I think anyone who's got like a little bit of humility or just willing to grow uh, is going to accept those those, those uh, suggestions. Well, thank you very much, Andy, for joining us. For, uh, this is, I've been talking to a- Andy Judd from Ridley College. I'm Mike Bird, author of Seven Things About the Bible I Wish All Christians Knew. Thank you for joining us. It's been a treat. Well, thanks again for joining us for Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew. We hope it's been a helpful challenge for some of the unconscious assumptions we make about history's best-selling book. Hey, Mike, in a sentence or two, what would you think we've got to take away this time around? The Bible is a holy book. It's God's book, but it's not self-interpreting, okay? And you've got to make sure that you're interpreting in a way that is wise, genuinely Christian, spirit-led, and responsible. And that calls for, you know, a lot of humility and a lot of listening to other people about how to apply the Bible, how to learn from it and get the most out of it. And that's a perfect summary. Well, if you're convinced and you want to read more about that, you can get your own copy of Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew by following the link in the show notes. Well, next episode, we invite author Amy Bird onto the show to discuss the next chapter. The purpose of scripture is knowledge, faith, love and hope we hope you can join us then mike well i'll definitely be there i'll be there with bells on okay see you then and see you too the eternity podcast network eternitypodcasts.com.au